0: Alright, well let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Acts chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. There should be a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those uh, and open up with us. We'll be in Acts chapter 9, uh, finishing off the chapter. Again, want to welcome you to service this morning. My name is Mike. I'm the Pastor here, and we are glad that you have joined us. Um, a couple of announcements before we get started. the first is that tomorrow night we'll be having our second Elephant in the Room session. So if you're not aware, what we're doing right now in the summer is this little five-part series called "The Elephant in the Room," where we are coming together on Monday nights to discuss controversial topics uh, that have historically polarized the church. So a couple of weeks ago, we came up and talked about abortion um, and had about a two hour long conversation, an uh, hour and a half two hour long conversation about. How biblically should we view abortion, and, and what are kind of the, the ways for Christians to think and, and act upon things like that? Um, tomorrow night we'll be talking about the death penalty and war. So, from a biblical perspective, how how are we to, to view such things? Um, so, the way we'll do it is we'll come up at seven thirty tomorrow night, and the sanctuary will be in here. Uh, we'll have two speakers who will present opposite views from the scriptures and then we'll have uh, just a big discussion and some questions and answers uh, afterwards. And So it was a great time if you made it out to the first one a couple weeks ago. So again, we invite you to come to that. That's tomorrow night at 7.30 right here in the sanctuary. The last announcement before we get into the text, uh, this Saturday we'll be having kind of a summer bash thing if the weather permits. If not, I assume we'll just bring the party inside. Um, But we'll have food and drinks and games for the kids. Uh, So I want to invite you to that. We'll get started around 5 p.m. That's this Saturday. And if you have a friend or, or a family that you've been praying for and you've been ministering to and you've been trying to see how you can kind of join God's work in their life, and maybe you've thought about inviting them to church and that's kind of been something on the back of your mind, this on Saturday would be a great event to invite them to, kind of like an entry door um, kind of thing where they can come up uh, in kind of a non-pressure situation, get to know people, build some relationships. So again, I'm hoping that that all of us, if you're a regular part of FC Cube here, that you have that kind of handful of people, okay, that, that you can list right now, two or three or four or five people that you are praying for and that you are thinking about constantly, that you are asking, how can I pray for you? How can I minister to you? Um, our mission here at the church is to make disciples, making disciples of Jesus. Uh, so we want to have that as our focus, as individuals, as we go um, throughout our, our lives and our, our, our weeks um, in our workplaces and in our um, families and our homes, those kind of things. So, For those kind of people that you have been praying for and kind of looking at, uh, this would be a great event to invite them to Saturday, okay? So we'll be in Acts chapter 9. We are currently preaching through the book of Acts, so uh, we're just kind of going bit by bit through it. Uh, We'll finish up the chapter here in chapter 9 with two very, very interesting stories. Um, So we'll have a good time here. We'll pick up in chapter 9, verse 32, if you're reading along. Here we go. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. It's an unfortunate name. (laughs) She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Okay, now, remember, Luke, Dr. Luke, uh, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and who's writing Acts for us now, is an amazing storyteller. That's one of the reasons I love Luke. I love the Gospel of Luke, and I love Acts, because he has this ability to weave these real intimate and emotional stories together. And he does that here with two, again, I think very emotional stories of healing uh, at the hands of Peter. Luke often tells stories in pairs. So he'll tell one story and then he'll tell a story right behind it that's very similar to it that you can kind of compare and get kind of a different angle at the same thing. Luke also loves to tell a story about a man and then follow it up with a story about a woman. And we'll notice again right before we get into it that Luke has sandwiched these two stories between two huge events in the life of the church. So the book of Acts is about how the church is getting off um, to their start in the first few years after Jesus' resurrection as the gospel is growing, as more and more people are believing and being baptized. And we just read about Saul being converted. You remember Saul was the, the, the greatest persecutor of the early church. Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, puts him on his back. Saul believes and is now on the team, okay? That's a game changer for the early church. The biggest persecutor now is, he's a card-carrying member, right? I mean, he's preaching, he's out there on the team, on the front lines. And then, right after these two stories in chapter 10 next week, we'll see a man named Cornelius meets up with Peter. And another huge shift takes place in the church, the gospel starts to go to Gentiles, not just Jewish people. But in between these two catacomb, uh, these two—I mean, just earth-changing stories—in the early church, you have very intimate stories of individuals, of Peter the apostle, full of the Holy Spirit, going into communities and seeing these miraculous events happen. The first story—he he heads up, he's going throughout cities, um, looking on some churches that have been established. And he meets a man who's been bedridden for eight years. I want you to, to, to hinge on that emotion and that number, okay? Eight years. Luke goes out of his way to tell us this. Eight years is a long time to not be able to walk. I mean, think about how frustrating it would be if you were paralyzed and you were stuck in bed and you couldn't do things for yourself. And then think about the kind of questions you would have after about a week, the kind of the doubts that you would be sending God's way. Sam's laughing over here. Sam just hurt her leg, right? So she's immobilized right now. And I was actually thinking about she this week while I was reading the text. I was like, I wonder what her reaction would be if I said eight years of that. I and mean, that's a long time to wonder why your friends are able to walk and have jobs and play with their kids and why you're stuck in bed. And then again, Peter, one who believes in the resurrection of Christ and who is filled with the spirit, comes up to him and says... Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. And he gets up. He says, make your bed here. That's not what you're thinking, okay? In America, right, we say make your bed to kids who need to make their bed after they've slept. This is probably more like set the table. Okay, we're going to celebrate. We're going to eat. Get up. Let's go. We're celebrating. He gets up. He's healed. And then what happens? People believe. People believe. People go, wow, something is happening In the Christian, something's happening with what they're doing and saying that's changing lives. That's bringing transformation. A question that I would want to pose to you this morning. As we continue on through the book of Acts, we've encountered miracles or healings um, already in the book of Acts. And we'll continue to encounter them throughout the book of Acts. I want to just for a second challenge you to, to ask yourself this. Do you believe that God still works like this? Is God still in the business of taking people who can't move their legs and saying, get up and walk? And that, That's an important question, I think, for us to ask for the kind of expectations that we have about God. I think um, from someone who's grown up in Sugarland and very much is indebted to the kind of Western Enlightenment culture, I think most of us assume God does not do these kind of things anymore. And if he does, it's very unusual and not going to happen to us. And this is kind of like a a deist frame of mind where God is far away. He's kind of set the world up to work, and he kind of steps back and watches it. And he doesn't really interfere all that much. And and maybe we also think that because we've, in the West largely, devalued the physical aspect of life. We've devalued bodies. So you could ask this question with another question: Can you do you expect God to change people's minds? To heal their minds, heal their emotions? I think most of us would be I'm comfortable. Yeah, sure. I can sign on board to that. But then, let's ask this question. Would you expect people to to fix people's bodies? Would you expect God to to fix people's bodies, to heal people's legs and arms and backs and spines and brains? That's when I start getting nervous. But but the scriptures are, are very much concerned with the physical, with the body. Salvation, according to the scriptures, is holistic. It's whole. It involves everything. God is taking what's broken and renewing it. And I would just want to suggest to you that perhaps we have, if that's true to you, if you're kind of uncomfortable with that idea that God can heal, that maybe you should expect him to heal, that maybe that's something that we might, maybe should be seeing in the church. I just kind of want to maybe challenge those assumptions. Sometimes we have assumptions about God that just don't ever go unchallenged and that's not healthy. So so let's challenge those assumptions this morning. I think in the scriptures and both the gospels, when we're hearing about Jesus' life and in the book of Acts, healing, I mean physical healing, miracles, transformation are a huge part of the church's experience. And I'm just not sure there's ever a point in the scriptures where God says, no more. I mean, maybe there are, maybe there is. I mean, we can we can discuss that, right? But but from my perspective, as of now, I just I haven't found that point. And then I think. The experience of the church historically, and even I would I would venture to say today, has been that healings like this are a regular part of the church's experience. I was challenged by a professor recently um, who was lecturing on the, the fact that Christianity by and large is no longer a Western religion. Um, the heart of Christianity, where the most Christians are now, is south of the equator. Latin America, Africa... If you go to a church in the West, you're not seeing what is really the church globally. Really, the church globally are brown and black, very charismatic, very spiritual, and very young, actually. And by all accounts, healings, that kind of stuff, is a very regular experience in their worship. All that to say, I never want to get ripped off when it comes to God. I never want to settle for a junior varsity spirituality. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't want to limit him. And so I think it's good as we read these stories to, to be challenged, to have our assumptions challenged about God, about how he works in the world, about maybe what we should expect. So, so for a while, I mean, I've started praying for healing. And if someone's sick, if something's not working, I ask God to fix it, change that. And I kind of expect him one of these days to do it. Uh, I'll tell you a story. Uh, maybe eight, nine years ago, uh, I was working at a bookstore. Man, I'm old. Uh, <laughs> and and I, was, I was really going through this kind of in my own studies, and, and I was reading through the Gospels and Acts and, and just kind of wondering. Because I had very much been very insecure with that kind of thing. I mean, I'm a good white kid, right? Eh, I've seen the televangelists, things like that. That doesn't, I mean, that's just weird. That doesn't happen, okay? God's concerned with our minds, with our hearts. Um, he kind of leaves the body alone. But through my studies and scriptures, I kind of started thinking, you know, maybe maybe that is something that, that happens and that should happen and that we should be a part of and things of that nature. And so anyways, at the bookstore, we had an older lady who would come in and she was bound to a wheelchair. And she has some kind of mental uh, disability as well. And she would come in maybe once every two weeks and buy a Bible or two um, These teen Bibles for her. And everyone loved her. Her name was Miss Armstrong. Everyone knew Miss Armstrong. It was was the highlight right when she came in. Everyone rushed to her and gave her a hug and asked her how she was doing. It was just a great time. Um, And so around that time, I started having these kind of thoughts. And I was like, you know what? I should heal Miss Armstrong. That would be awesome. So I wasn't ready to really go out there yet. So while I hugged her one day, when she came into the store, I, I kind of did the healing thing in my mind, right? I was like, Jesus, heal her. I'm not going to tell her to get up, but you, if you want her to, you can make her get up. And I kind of stepped back, and nothing kind of happened. And nothing happened. I was a little disappointed, and I was I was wondering if I, if I missed the boat, if I was off on something. Later, though, we would find out that she had been systematically stealing Bibles, our store, so that's on her. I feel like I feel like I'm a little bit off the hook for that one. Um, I don't know if you know this. But this is totally off Bibles are like a huge black market um, these days. Uh, like that's a pretty that's a pretty big thing out there. Anyways, yeah, we traced back hundreds of bibles that she had taken over the years. It was kind of a ploy, the wheelchair and the disability, that kind of thing. It was a big deal. All that to say, I felt a little bit better about my first attempt <laughs> into the world of asking God to heal. So, so you, see, you see Peter here. He walks up full of the spirit and says, get up, man. And it's a, it's a sign. I mean, this is an important thing to realize. Miracles, healings, those things are signs. They're pointers to a, a bigger, more ultimate reality. They're never just meant to be there for themselves. So this is important in Jesus' life and his career. Jesus, while he heals lots of people, is not ultimately concerned about healing people. Over and over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus walks away from a group of people who want to be healed. If his primary purpose was to heal people, he did not do the best job he could have. He constantly walked away from people who needed to be healed, who he could have healed. Jesus saw his miracles, his healing ministry, as simply witness to what he said was happening in his life. There is a new power happening. God is transforming the world. Here's a living, breathing example in front of you. Believe me, follow me. God's breaking into this world and redeeming and rescuing. And that's the same thing in the apostles, in the early church. They're witnesses. And so you see that the community believes. They see it happen. They go, wow, God is changing the world through Christ and through the spirit. And so we believe we put our trust in the Lord. Notice that, I mean, and this is important for us in a medicalized age. We very much in the modern realm, we think of health in medical terms, which has not always been the case. It's important for us to realize that miracles, healings, are not a way to get out of death. Does that make sense? So, so this guy, he's still going to eventually, at some age, his body's going to start to break down. And he might lose control of his legs again before he dies. And then Tabitha, who we'll meet in just a second, she dies again. Right? I mean, she's not still around. She'd be pretty famous if she was. She died again. It wasn't a way to, to, to get out of death, to cure. It's a sign. It's a pointer that God is doing something powerful in Jesus and through the Spirit working in the church. So we have this first story where Peter comes up and he heals this man who's been a veteran for eight years. And then while he's over there, remember, Peter's the head of the church. He's the, the big honcho. Um, there's a, a lady, Tabitha, named Dorcas, who dies in a nearby town. Over by the coast. And they hear that Peter is close by. And so they say, go get Peter. And Peter comes. What we know about Dorcas is she was full of good works and acts of charity. And she had some kind of ministry here with a group of widows. Where she provided clothes for them. And it seemed like she lived with them. We don't know if she was a widow herself. We do know she probably had access to money. She was probably a wealthy lady. She had money and she had the time, the leisure time to, to provide for these widows. And she had built quite a, a nice little ministry here, giving life to these widows. And she dies. And so Peter shows up. Everyone's crying and weeping because she's died. And they're, they're showing Peter all the clothes that she's made, all the things that she has done, and, and all the ways that she means the world to them. And then Peter says, why don't y'all get out of the house for a second? And Peter kneels down beside her and says, hey, Tabitha, get up. I mean, you've got to wonder what's going through Peter's mind at this moment. You've got to wonder why Peter does this here, now, with her. He doesn't always do this. We've seen already Stephen died a very public death. No one raised him from the dead. If this was strictly a PR move, like a a pre-planned thing, you'd think Stephen would have been raised from the dead. If everybody was expected to be raised from the death as soon as they died, you'd think... Stephen would be, right? But for whatever reason, Peter in this situation just goes, hey, hey, get up. We're not going to do this right now. I want you to just for a second turn to Luke chapter 8. What's interesting about this scene with Dorcas is that it's almost verbatim something that happens to Jesus. And Peter was there when Jesus did it. What I'm wondering this morning is is whether Peter's instincts kicked in when he was in that room. And he imitated his Lord. And said, hey, I've seen this scene before. I know what to do. So look in in Luke chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man from Jairus. Who was a ruler of the synagogue? And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. Again, this is Luke. I mean, you got to feel the emotion of this. Don't just read over these words. Twelve-year-old girl dying. This guy has heard Jesus heals people, and he books it to get to Jesus. This is happened to a little girl who's dying. Is that something you'd be interested in? It appears Jesus is on his way. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now look at this, verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler's house and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, verse 50, on hearing this answer, answered him, do not fear, only believe. And she will be well. I love this. Jesus is trying to remind the guy, hey, that's not a huge deal in my economy. Mm-hmm. That's not a roadblock here, okay? That's not going to stop what I wanted to do. Calm down. She'll be, she'll be all right. 51. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except, who is that? Peter. And John and James... Then her three, and the father and the mother of the child. And they were all weeping and mourning for her. But he said, don't weep. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. Now the Aramaic for a child here, what Jesus would have been speaking, is Talitha. Talitha, arise. You'll notice that's one letter off, right? Peter says, Tabitha, arise. What happens here? Her spirit returns and she got up at once. He directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what happened. So as we flip back to Acts chapter 9, I've got to wonder if Peter gets into this house and goes, I've seen this play out before. I know what to do. And his instinct kind of kicks in. And watch what he does here. He simply imitates his Lord which I think as, as those who follow Jesus should be one of our, our highest goals in life, is to watch him and to imitate him. He steps here, I step here. He says this, I say this. Paul in Ephesians 5 would say, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved us. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What it means to be a disciple is to learn how to live like that person lives. Peter had so been captivated by the life of Christ that he gets in a situation and he raises a a lady from the dead. we have got to imagine that's probably surprising Peter too at this moment. We have no indication he's done something like this yet. This is a whole other level of, of miraculous healing. Perhaps these are the things that one would expect when one more and more and more walks like Jesus walked and becomes conformed to his image as the Holy Spirit flows through that person. And so so Peter here imitates Jesus. Dorcas lives. She gets up and he presents her. And notice once again, people believe. It's a sign. People see that happen in her life and go, wow, something is happening through Jesus and the Spirit. Through the community of believers. Those who say, Jesus came, he died, and he rose again. And he gave us a spirit. Now, I want to focus your attention here on the, these two stories to a character that you might skip over if you're not careful. Okay, I feel like it's my job as pastor here to, to make sure that we pay attention to this character and what he's doing in the story. Even though, again, we might kind of skip over him. We'll do this by, by I'll ask you a question. How many times, I'll give you just a couple seconds, can you find the word or a a variation of the word rose or rise or arise in just these two stories? Didn't think we'd be working at church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm saying one in verse 34. Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. So there we've got two. And then, as I keep reading, I, I see in verse thirty-nine. So Peter rose and went with them. And in verse forty, he turned to the body and says, "Tabitha, arise." And then, in verse forty-one, he gave her his hand and raised her up. I'm seeing five here um, occurrences, and this is all the same word in the Greek. It's also the same Greek word that's characteristically used to talk about Jesus' resurrection. It's the resurrection word. That's what he says to Tabitha: "Resurrect, rise, come up from the dead." Here's what I want you to notice. What God is doing here, because who's rising people? Who's raising them from the dead? Is it Peter? Is it that person who died? I mean, we have it explicit. Peter says this, right? When he heals the guy he's been better and he says, who heals you? Jesus Christ heals you. This is not me. Jesus, the one who's alive and working right now, He's healing you for his glory, for his name, for his power. Notice the people, they don't praise Peter. They don't start believing in him as he's some magician or miracle worker. They praise who? The one who they realize actually did the healing. It's God who's healing people. It's God who's raising people. What I want to point out to you this morning is that God has a few things that he loves to do. Some characteristics, if you will. Um, so, so I don't know about you, but... There are a few things in my life that I love. I love to do them. I love to talk about them. I love to be around them. And and when you get me started, I get kind of a twinkle in my eye. I mean, these are just my favorite things to do. You might not know it, but God has things like that too. God has things that he loves to do, that he gets excited to participate in, that he throughout history has just said, this is how I, I like to operate. This is how I like to interact with creation. And one of these characteristic moves, one of these favorite things that he has, if not the favorite thing, is this. To bring life from death. He loves it. He does it all the time. He sees a dark situation. He sees a situation characterized by death, metaphorically or literally. And he says, hey, I want life here. I want healing here. I want forgiveness here. I want wholeness here. I want satisfaction here. I want joy here. I want purpose here. I want meaning here. And he goes into hopeless, downtrodden, despair-filled situations. And he works life. And if you look at the landscape of history, he's doing this over and over and over and over again. So that you would have to say, he's got to have something about this that he loves doing. He just is excited to do this. He sees something hopeless and he says, let's bring some hope there. He sees someone laying low and says, let's get up. He sees death and slavery and he says, how about some life and freedom? I mean, I mean, again, you can go through the whole landscape of history. So Joseph, you remember Joseph from the Old Testament? He's sold into slavery by his brothers, left for dead. And God sees that situation and goes, we can have fun here. <clears throat> And he blesses, he brings life to Joseph. Joseph rises to the top in Egypt, finds life there. And then not only that, but Joseph then is able to bring life to his brothers who sold him into slavery. And you remember what Joseph said um, when it was all said and done? He said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Joseph sold his slavery and, and God's kind of tapping his foot going, yes, this is going to be great. Because he loves to bring life out of death. He loves it. He does it over and over and over again, which is the best news in the world for someone who's experiencing a bummer situation. To look at the God revealed through the scriptures and in history and say, I know what he wants to do here. I know where his heart's at. And to be able to trust and worship. So he does it with Joseph. He does it with Israel as a whole nation. Remember, Israel is in slavery in Egypt. I mean, being completely beaten down by the Egyptians and God does what? He says, hey, let's let's get out of here in a spectacular, marvelous, extraordinary way. Let's get out of here. Let's go to life. Let's go to freedom. Um, I want you to turn, if you haven't, uh, your scriptures with you to 1 Samuel chapter 2 um, and, and look at a poem with me just real quick here. Uh, Hannah was another person that um, in the Old Testament, God works life out of a, a, a bad situation. Um, she was barren. So she wanted a child and, and could not have a child. You might say that's a hopeless situation. You might say that's an anti-life situation. And God ends up giving her a child, who would be Samuel, a very important figure in history. Um, but after she gets pregnant, she prays a prayer. And you see these kind of themes established that will run again throughout Scripture. This seems to be the heartbeat of God. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah prayed and said this, My heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation and your rescue. There is none holy like the Lord, there is none besides you, there is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who are fool have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Here we see another theme. Not only does God exalt the lowly, he lowers the exalted. God, as God, is not a fan of arrogance. He's not a fan of people who make power plays. He's not a fan of people who, who think they control and own and have rights to whatever they would wish at the expense of others. So while God raises, he also lowers. So those who are full are now hungry. But those who are hungry have bread. He's come and said, let's have some life here. We keep reading in the poem. The barren has borne seven seven children. But she who has many children is forlorn. forlorn. Look at verse six here. Haunting verse. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol or the grave and raises up. As a professor of mine would say, this is a verse to put in your theological pipe and smoke. <laughs> right? <laughs> marinate on. The Lord kills and raises up. He brings down to the grave. Whatever else this verse might be saying, again, maybe a, a good verse to think about, to dwell on. It's saying that God does what? God's involved in this activity of taking what's in the grave and bringing it about. Taking what's been dead and bringing it to life. We keep reading verse 7. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings, the, he brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Okay, again we can go back to Acts 9. And we were seeing God in these tutorials. Just do what he loves to do, which is bring life out of desperate situations. He's not with Joseph, he's not with Moses. I mean, really, again, the whole landscape of history, we can see this happening. He does it with Israel as a nation. He does it primarily, we might want to center in on and focus in on Jesus. Jesus dies in the darkest moment in history and then raises again from the dead. And the scriptures were told that God raised him, the father raised Jesus. Jesus doesn't raise himself, the father raises Jesus. Robert Jensen, a theologian, would say that God is, whatever we mean by God, according to the scriptures, God is the person who raised Israel from Egypt and then raised Jesus from the grave. He's the person who took those two hopeless situations Turn them around and through Jesus said we're going to do this for the community of my people I mean remember Jesus according to the scriptures according to the Christian community is not just a man who dies and then has it turned around by God it's God himself becoming man and experiencing death so that he can come out on the other side and bring with him a group of people why? because he loves to do that that's what he wants to do. It's his favorite thing. We don't want to miss here. God's at play in these two stories. Peter gets some attention here. Dorcas gets some attention here. But God just is, is just going crazy. I mean, he's doing exactly what he's promised to do. To bring life up out of death. This is the, the message, this is the hope of the gospel. That God is in the process of redeeming and healing and making whole. That he's rescuing creation. And that you and I are invited into it. We might put two prongs to this as an invitation. Not only are we invited to experience God's rescue, experience his healing, experience his love and power. But we're also invited to share it. And I think you see both of these here in these two stories. We're invited to experience it. So Peter's one who's experienced God's power and His love, who's had the Holy Spirit infused inside of him, and the guy who's been paralyzed for eight years now experiences it. And the people who see that and turn to the Lord now experience that. And Dorcas experiences that. And the people who see her experience that. And today, right now, you and I again are invited to experience God's rescue, His salvation, to join hands with the one who says we're heading towards life. We're heading towards rising. We're heading towards resurrection. Follow me. And so we, we have emotional scars. We have mental baggage. We have guilt weighing in on us. We have physical ailments. We have all these different things burdening us down and we're invited to experience the one who says, let's get rid of those. We're invited to experience his healing, his love. I might add here, well, I would, I would invite you to pray for healing, to ask for healing, to expect healing. And all aspects of life, not just physical, not just mental, not just emotional. I would also say, watch the guy here who's healed in the first story, who's been paralyzed for how long? Eight years. The timetable's not on your end, right? You don't get to control the, the timeline here. Eight years of waiting and wondering, and then God comes. And even then, once again, it's just a sign of something more ultimate, something deeper that's happening and will happen to him. I would also point out that, that what God doesn't do, and this is an important thing to realize, because it will protect you from going maybe too far with this idea of, of God's power, God's healing. He, he doesn't let you avoid death. Does that make sense? He doesn't, he doesn't push you out of the way of death. <laughs> he goes through it with you and brings you out on the other side. There's very little avoidance of suffering in the scriptures. If anything, it's the opposite way. And if anything, you have the believer celebrating that because it means what? Life is just around the corner because they've seen the pattern. They know what it looks like. You go into the grave and you come out of the grave. And so that's why baptism, we we say baptism looks like dying and rising again. Why? Because that's what we want to do. We want to die to ourselves, we want to die to the world, we want to die to the old habits of living, we want to die to the evil powers in the world. Why? So that we can live to God. So that we can experience joy and peace and salvation. But you don't do that without going down first. And we might also remember there that, once again, we don't have a God who, who just looks at us impassively and says, hurry up and get over here. We have a God who did what? Who said, I'll go through it with you. Take my hand, I'll lead the way. But at the center of our faith, you've you've got to get this. It's got to be formative for how you view God that he became a man and died. He didn't look at death as a problem to be solved. As much as he looked at it as a reality to be fixed, to be involved with, to end himself by going through it and canceling it by raising from the dead in Jesus and so when we, when we suffer, when we have those eight years, we remember that, that the God we look at is the God who, who hangs on a cross, is the God who is betrayed, is the God who cries, is the God who suffers with us, but says, hey, there's life coming, there's rescue coming, there's resurrection coming, the Father raises and so we we're invited to experience that life, to experience that love. And then we're invited, and you've got to get this, to share it, to be a conduit of that power. It's not to it stop with us, but to instead flow through us into others. So that with Peter and with Dorcas, the, the spirit doesn't just stop inside of them. They don't experience God's love, and then that just, that's it. That's the end of the story. They then start to share that love, and other people around them experience God's rescue through them. And so Peter does it in a dramatic way, right? I mean, he walks up to people like, get up, you're dead, no longer. Dorcas, though, in a very undramatic way. Dorcas is a quiet, unsung hero. Who faithfully leads her life in everyday normalness. I've mentioned before in, in just conversation with my friends that possibly I, I, I'm not as worried about something crazy happening in my life whether persecution or dying or some kind of crazy radical thing, as I am worried about having to follow Jesus for the rest of my life with nothing special happening. That, to me, is a scary option. To think that I'm going to have 80 years of relative comfort and wealth to try to be faithful. I mean, that's a daunting thing in front of me. I kind of would rather have the all or nothing, right? Dorcas, though, with little fanfare, sees a group in need and says, I can sew. I have a little bit of money. Can I bring life here? And this community is transformed by her. And through the miracle Peter works in her life, a whole group of people start to believe. And again, she's, she's not some famous preacher or miracle worker, author, speaker. She doesn't have a tour going on, okay? She's a sewer. She makes clothes and she loves widows who, who, by the way, in the ancient world would have been one of the most helpless outcast group of people with almost no power to provide for themselves, to take care of themselves, to protect themselves. She sees the need and says, let me bring life into this dark situation. Peter sees a guy paralyzed and says, let me bring life into the situation. He sees a community not believing and says, let me bring life into the situation as believers as those who worship the God who brings life, we're not only called to experience that; but we're called to share it. We're called to go out in our communities. We're called to go out to our friends and our neighbors and our our coworkers and our our peers and our classmates, and to be conduits to let His 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 love and power flow through us, in us, and through us. So this morning, as we we read the narratives, as we think about our own narratives, as we think about what God's doing in our lives, what we're asking Him to do in our lives, what, what he, He's doing people around us, what we're asking Him to do in people around us. I want us to be reminded of who our God is, what He's up to, of what, again, I don't think He stopped doing. I think to this day, right now, in 2012 in Sugar Land, Texas, on a rainy Sunday morning in July, the Spirit whispers to a group of people and says, Hey, come over here for life follow me. The hope is that we would respond, that we'd follow him, and that then we would be able to share. And as the early church saw, the gospel grows and grows and grows, and may we see that again in our own lives, in our own communities. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Again, we, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the grace that you've shown us in revealing yourself to us. Uh, we ask that you would continue to speak and move and be powerful uh, among us uh, we we pray your blessing over our community uh, over our friendships over our uh, worship uh, over our mission uh, we pray that you would uh, meet with us powerfully to continue to work through us we love you and it's in all of uh, it's in Jesus name that all of God's people said amen, amen. amen.